thank you. That's very gracious and very kind of you. And uh, hopefully in the days, weeks ahead, we'll get to know names and put names with faces and, and an opportunity to meet each other. And um, I'm looking forward to ministering here. We're not moved in yet. We won't be moved in until uh, we begin July 1, but then we have things to finish up, things to pack and be here uh, in those early weeks of July. We are not doing well yet remembering where everything is. Uh, um, Lucy f- drove in on Thursday. I flew in from Chicago. We met here. She got lost, and uh, we drove around a little bit. I've gotten lost. So I can go from here to a couple of restaurants that we've established. We've got to re-eat, come back here again, and we can find our way back home. But we're going to learn. And uh, the morning service, 8 o'clock service, I've got to share something with you. And I'm going to probably get in trouble. So I'm going to ask forgiveness right away from a lady who... Um, as Stephen introduced uh, us and being coming aboard and on staff afterwards, then we were shaking hands down here, and, and um, a very kind gal, I'd say early 30s. She may be here after Sunday. So if you did this, forgive me. But she came up and she says, it's, it's good to welcome you here, and, and I'm so glad Stephen is adding somebody elderly to the staff. So, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I'm... Uh, oh, Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, happy Father's Day to me. All right. So, <laughs> so anyway, my wife's here. I have to behave in this service. But hun, now I'm called elderly, and, and I still feel young. Do I look young? Say amen. Thank you. All right. All right. I have the privilege of, of being in the pulpit. And as Lucy and I have, are, have grown, we've, for the last couple of years, have felt this way. But we love Stephen and Marcia. I do consider it an honor, not only to stand in the pulpit, but to be able to call him my friend. And I hope you call your pastor your friend. Uh, I do. I'm looking forward to sitting under his ministry, sitting where you are every week. I was looking forward to that today. But, uh, <laughs> but that's not what God had. Years ago, and, and I think I sometimes get it wrong, I do call it um, counted cross stitch. Is that what it is? My wife did some... Of that, and uh, at the time she was collecting, still does collect the precious moment figurines, and people would give those to her for gifts. And uh, but Lucy came across a um, a plaque that she then made, and I think it was given to me on Father's Day from the boys, made by mom, and uh, and it was a plaque that then hung in between the two bedrooms. And right on a wall there. And I would see it every morning as we walked out of our bedroom. Up on the landing, I see this plaque. And it, it would be a reminder in the evening. And it said this. Anyone can be a father, but it takes someone special to be a dad. Okay? Anyone can be a father. Biologically, you can be a father. But it takes someone special to be a dad. You have to earn that title. When the kids call you a dad, it's special. And you have to earn that right. I'd like to speak on a Father's Day theme from a passage of Scripture that is shop-worn and preached. And I have filed, huge file thick, on sermons that I've preached from this passage. And over the years, and I have amassed commentaries from different commentators on, on the passage and the sin of the Son and whatnot. But the last year, I've been doing a lot of work over studies that have been chiding us that we as preachers have too often preached Luke 15 from our present 20th, 21st century, 19th century context. And I want us to look into this passage of Scripture 
There's a lot that's being said today, and fatherhood itself is changing. I was going to quote, and I won't take the time. This is the Wednesday's edition of USA Today. This is the life section entitled a whole front page. Today's guy's parent with a new datitude, okay, instead of attitude. And it goes on for two pages on how the role of father is changing, especially with mothers and others who are sent overseas in the Iraq war. Now dad wears both sets of hats, pants, shoes, skirts, whatever it all takes to be the, the dad today. But what is fatherhood? How has it changed through the centuries? And in Jesus' day, there was a concept of what a great dad, an honorable dad should be doing. Something takes place in this text that I want us to look at that helps us appreciate, I hope this day, our father, and I don't mean just our dads, your dad. Now, if you have your dad alive yet, I do. I hope sometime through the day you'll do something. My dad, I'm going to give a call as we get ready to head back. I'll call him from the airport and I'm going to talk to him and I will tell him. My dad, I don't know that I've ever heard it. I have never heard from my father, I love you. He didn't say it. Men his generation didn't say it. They did it, okay? Uh, He's always been there, always. He's there. I'll pick up the phone. Hey, dad, how you doing? Hey, and you know, and. My dad owned an auto garage. I worked with him right underneath the car's hoist. I grew up. He talked with me when we were dating. He talked with me about cars. He talked with me about life. We talked about everything. And guys my age, when we were in high school, we used to build and race cars. They would come to the garage, put them up on the hoist, and dad would talk to them. They liked talking to Larry. He connected with them. And so guys would come out, hang out. There were times, and I didn't grow up in a saved home, and so in the evenings we would carouse and run. The guys would say, I couldn't go. I had to work this evening. Well, can your dad go? It was kind of bizarre, okay? (laughs) So um, my dad was cool back then. He's grown older. I don't know that I would call my dad cool anymore. Um, After all, I'm called elderly. But uh, uh, (laughs) I can't get over that, (laughs) But But... um, Call your dad today and, and tell him, I love you. And sometimes in those relationships, they're strained or whatever. Um, but I want you all to do something else. Somehow through the day, in the day. If you haven't already done it, let's do it through the day. There's a father in heaven that we better tell we really love. When you see this passage of scripture unfold in its context, I think that becomes apparent. He earns the right to be called dad. After all, in Jesus' day, His disciples came up to him. John the Baptist's disciples were praying. And Jesus, we call him the apostles, came up to him in Luke 11 and said, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus teaches them something totally different than the Jews had been. They had prayed to God, a remote God, distant God. In fear oftentimes, he was the great covenant God. But when Jesus teaches them to pray, he says, pray this way. Say it with me as we start. Our Father, which art in heaven. Aramaic is the word Abba, Dad. He had earned that right. A whole new way to pray. Speaking to God intimately. 
As you look in our passage of Scripture of Luke 15, I'm going to go back for just a moment, please, because if we don't understand Luke 15, which is going to take place, Jesus will preach Luke 15 to his hearers at about the 30th month in his public ministry, a little over two and a half years. At 18 months, we are in Luke chapter 6. For 18 months, Jesus has been publicly teaching Luke 6, it came about on a certain Sabbath, Luke 6, 1. He was passing through some cornfields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Verse 6. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might reason, find, to accuse him. He will eat on a Sabbath. He will heal on the Sabbath. And what happens? What do the religious leaders of the day do? Verse 11, Luke 6, 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. From 18 months on in his ministry publicly, they will go to great lengths to find anything they can do to accuse him, to somehow bring him before a court of law on grounds because they had just grown in such hatred they needed to find a reason to accuse him of breaking the law. But he does more that irritates them. In Luke chapter 15, now all the tax gatherers, the publicans, Jews, who had made their living by exercising taxes, excising, excuse me, taxes from their fellow Jews, taxing them and actually taking advantage of them. As a result, most of the Jews in the land hated the publicans. They hated the tax collectors. They wouldn't even let them worship. And you know Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican in the temple praying. Well, they hated the tax collectors. And they hated street people, the prostitutes, the sinners. They were coming, these people, however, to Jesus, near to him, verse 1, to listen to him. They found someone completely different in Jesus as a religious teacher than any that they had ever heard. And both the Pharisees, the religious establishment, and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners. It's bad enough that he lets them sit in the audience when he is speaking. But then he has the audacity to eat with them, to go later and spend time in company. We call it fellowshipping with them. Jesus knowing the antagonism in their hearts, verse 3, tells them a parable. It's one parable It's an encompassing parable, folks. He doesn't tell three parables, though most of us preach it that way. It is a parable to catch and engage every single person hearing. He is to catch workers, common workers. Let's call them for a moment shepherds who can relate to village life. He's going to talk to ladies, so he'll take a lady who's a homemaker 
He will talk to a father, and everybody can relate with a father or mother. And then he'll talk about a young son and an older son. He's going to bring in, you can't escape. Everybody is brought into the conversation. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, verse 4, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture? He starts out by saying, which one among you? Anybody here that if this happened, you wouldn't do something? Does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman? If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, search it carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she'll gather folks together and her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. The grammar here is very important. For instance, the shepherd. We'll be hearing from some people who lived in that day and will uh, uh, study the culture of that day and then the people who lived in the day in which Jesus lived. And they still do to this day in the Arab-speaking world, the Arabic world. If you speak Farsi, you, uh, you, you speak in these terms in some of these village cultures. You don't say it was outrageous in Jesus' day. They didn't say I lost my car keys. I misplaced my key. I lost my watch. I lost my sheep. I lost my coin. It goes like this. My keys left me. Okay. The sheep left me. The coin which fell from me. The person never takes responsibility. You don't lose it. It leaves you. Jesus will counterculture it as it were and he will say the sheep and he's saying to the religious leaders you lost your flock. You were responsible. You lost them. Essentially saying I'm coming to get them but you lost them. Now you're condemning me. We ought to rejoice. And he goes on. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And we're going to begin this parable. It's not an allegory. The father is not God incognito, but it's an earthly father. Joachim Jeremiah, in his commentary on this passage says, The father is not God, but an earthly father with issues of his own. Yet some of the expressions used by Jesus are meant to reveal that in his love he is an image of God. G.V. Jones writes in an ancient commentary, The parable about the prodigal son is not primarily about a spendthrift boy, but about the relations between God and the sinner and the self-righteous. Kenneth Bailey, and I want you to remember that name, notes, quote, Jesus is describing a type of person. If we or any part of his listening audience fit the characterization, well and good. I mentioned a name here a moment ago. Most of the commentaries I have on Luke were written in the past few decades, and I have several feet of them on Luke. But one writer has been cited 
a lot the last couple of years, mainly because Dr. Kenneth E. Bailey has served as the president of the Near East School of Theology for over four decades in Beirut, Lebanon. He has made it his life study to study the village world of the Arab and Jewish people and the customs that they would have been familiar with that are time-tested, very old, and are embedded in this passage of Scripture. Bailey tells us, in order to understand this passage, and you may not rush out and pick up Kenneth Bailey's commentary or small piece on the prodigal. You can in your local bookstore. You can pick up John MacArthur's on the Tale of Two Sons, where he builds a lot of it off of Bailey as well. But as you read this, Bailey says that in order to understand this parable of the prodigal, understand the sheep, and understand this passage of this shepherd who would even go to great lengths. And when he finds this lamb, it's not a lamb, it's a sheep. Most shepherds were hoping when they went out and searched for a day or two that after climbing in the mountainsides, the lamb or the sheep would be dead. I don't have to carry it back. I can tell the owner then that, sorry. Instead, he will take it, put it on his back, and walk back for a day and a half carrying a 90-pound-plus sheep. Go to great lengths. We ought to rejoice. Jesus is going to now talk about a family, a dad. And in order to understand this passage, two concepts are very important about first century life. Number one, Jesus is going to use an illustration or a parable about village peasant life. It's a village. There be as many as there could be upwards of 800 to 1,000 people in a village, but generally they're in the numbers of three, 400. Everybody knows everybody. It's a virtual party line, okay? Everybody's listening in on everybody's conversation. So there's not going to be one thing spoken that not everybody, everybody is aware of. And number two, from the time you are born, all through your teen years, into adulthood, men, women, boy, girl, the overriding, dominating theme in their life. All you have to do is watch Fiddler on the Roof, attend the play, Jewish culture. The dominating theme is what we call shame or honor and respect. You avoid shame. You always want to bring honor and respect. We call it saving face not allowing yourself to be shamed, making sure people are respected, that you live with self-esteem and integrity and esteem, among others. Honor and respect. And unless we understand the shame and honor paradigm that the villagers in Jesus' day understood, you and I are going to miss some very important points. What's going to happen now, and stay with me for it, and we won't take real long, and so I have to hurry through the passage but I want you to see an outrageous story on Father's Day. This story, because they said his actions, what Jesus was doing, was completely scandalous. He is eating with these publicans and these sinners. His activity is outrageous. It's scandalous. So Jesus, in turn, is going to tell them a scandalous, outrageous account that ultimately leads us to a thesis that you have to earn the right to be dad, to be called dad. God has. I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, verse 12, 
There's three characters in this account. A father, a younger son, and an older son brought out. As we bring them together, I want you to notice, number one with me in this passage of Scripture, in this contrast of life. Number one in verse 12, an outrageous exchange, an outrageous verbal exchange. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. As we talk about this outrageous exchange, I'm going to bring up three questions. Notice the first one. When does any son get an inheritance? Now, I have three sons. They're not going to get much of an inheritance, all right? Not in our economy. They're just not going to get much. But when do they get it? When do they get it? When I? And now that I'm elderly, not that far off, all right? (laughs) But when do they get the inheritance? When I die. Essentially, what is this younger son saying? Father, give me it. What is he saying? I expect you to what soon? Die. It's the equivalent of saying, Father, I wish you were dead. An incredibly disrespectful thing to say to your father. He doesn't want the business. He doesn't want the family farm. He just wants the father's stuff. He's completely out of line. No son in that day would ask that of a father, especially the younger, which brings up a couple of thoughts here. What do the Pharisees, as they're hearing Jesus speak, expect this father to do? If he has any honor, if he has any respect for himself, he's going to chastise that son right on the spot. He will bring him low. If he's not, well, I grew up in a German clan home. My aunts and uncles, central Minnesota, big family, both sides. Whether it be on my mother's side or my father's side, there are many, many times when I, as a youngster, would say something, my mom or dad were not worth an arm shot, what would an aunt or an uncle do? What would they do? They'd, they'd deal with it. Okay? If you're Italian or you're Irish or German, you know what I'm talking about. The other brother, the older brother, it was his responsibility It was his responsibility to step up to the plate and to do something. And everybody knew it. And he does not. So it brings me to another question. What does the father do? As you look in verse 12, and he divided his wealth between them. How did he divide it? Two sons, he would divide it into thirds. If you have four sons, you divide it into five pieces. If you had eight sons, you'd divide up your land into nine pieces. The oldest would get twice as much, but everybody would get their share. In other words, the youngest son is going to get a third of the father's stuff. The oldest son will get two-thirds. And you're thinking, divide it up. What, would he, what could he possibly be thinking? Somebody ought to straighten up the father as well. Who does this? First, his son disrespects him. What kind of a dysfunctional family are we dealing with? It's scandalous. It was an outrageous exchange. But I want you to notice in verse 13, an outrageous excess is now going to occur in verse 13. As you read, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered 
his estate with loose living. Some commentators say that the reason the boy took off so fast not many days later is he wanted to get out and get engaged in his sinning, just start the good life. That's probably not the case, folks. But I've preached it that way many times. It's probably not the case. Actually, Bailey and others now tell us that because of the boy's public shame and scorn of the community, and it would have been growing in intensity so great at this point that he rushes to sell his stuff to get out of town. And that's what's meant here in verse 13. Not many days later, the young son gathered everything together. Doesn't mean he packed his bags, get everything packed, and he's ready for the journey. To gather together means that he liquidates his portion. I live in Florida currently. We're moving up here the 1st of July. We came to settle on a town home. I live in Florida and own a home. We've owned it now for three and a half years in Florida. And I'll say it one more time. We own a home in Florida. Most of the time when you move to another location, you do what with your home? You cannot sell a home right now in Florida, okay? For a lot of reasons. There's 275,000 homes still remaining to be unsold and more are for closing every day. Pretty homes, nice homes. If I want to sell that home, I would have to do... I actually got a very, very good deal here in Cary. We bought a home in Apex, Lucy and I. My heart goes out to the sellers because when they came to the closing, they had to bring a check because we bought the home for less than the mortgage is. Some things are just upside down in our economy, aren't they? In my case in Florida, they use an expression, my mortgage is underwater. Many of you have heard that? It's upside down, meaning I what? I owe more than the home is worth. Okay? So if I want to sell it, I have to take a... And this boy is going to take what his dad and grandpa and family have spent generations accumulating. He will sell it in days. Meaning in order to do it that rapidly, and other clansmen are not going to want to just run in and take advantage... They will take a loss. And in shame, he does it. That's bad. That is horrible. But he gathers all and goes into a, this expression. When Jesus hearers heard this, the younger son gathered everything, went on a journey into a far or distant country. Every phrase here is pregnant with meaning. When he went to a distant country, that doesn't mean he went to Canada. He didn't go to South America, and he didn't go to South Africa. He didn't go to Eastern Europe. He may have just had to go over to Morrisville. That's as far as he may have had to go. Or to Durham, Chapel Hill. That's it. The idea of a far country is he went where Gentiles dwelt. A separated from them country. He went there at that point. Every one of Jesus' hearers would say, that's outrageous. This young man has brought shame on himself and shame on his family, shame on his father. He's disobeyed a commandment, not honoring him. Shame on his community by leaving. Shame on his religion. He's going to go and work for a swineherd. Shame on himself morally. He will party, lose it all, spend it on prostitutes. And what do you suppose the hearers are thinking? This is crazy. 
This can never happen. Nobody does this. So shameful. Folks, at this point, Jesus has just done something as a master painter. He has imagery painted an outstanding portrait in their mind of the most shameful sinner possible. That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. He just wanted to draw a picture of the most sinful person possible. And he did it in a few words. And they got it. Everybody there got it. So let's talk about this outrageous existence. Number three, verses 14 through 16. Now, when he had spent everything, by the way, there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, and by the way, the squandered, he took that money he had. And the terms that mean he squandered it, he took that money. And I have to use the expression because this is exactly what he did. He went into places that we would call like bar rooms and others. And he would do expressions like set up for everybody. I want to buy one for the house. If you understand that expression, I hope you don't. But if you understand that expression, what it means is he's buying his friends. And so as long as he's got money, he's got friends. And that's what he was doing. And when the money ran out, so did his Notice, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. Yeah, and his friends are just running right there to help him. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. Verse 15 has the idea, the idea of attached. He literally got involved with someone, and the person that he got attached with or working with didn't like him. Just like, i got to get rid of this guy. And he sent him, go away, to the fields to feed swine. And the way he was longing to fill his stomach because of the famine with the pods. The idea here then of the carob tree that only pigs can eat. And no one was giving anything to him. What a contrast to what he was just doing, giving everything to everybody else until he gave it away. And so we see this outrageous existence. Now, folks, i got to stop here because I'm going to build this parable on this over the next couple of minutes and we close. When Jesus' hearers are hearing him tell this parable, immediately in their mind, when they hear what this debauched young man did, and the father did nothing, the villagers are thinking, the kazaza, Hebrew word kazaza, K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H, ceremony would have happened. In a kazaza ceremony, when a person takes the riches we had of the covenant people, our land that God has provided, and you squander it with the Gentiles, they will take a clay pot or a pitcher. They will fill it full of grain. Sometimes they would fill it full of oil. They will go out into the road outside the village. And there before everybody, the town people, the clan, the village will break the pot. An elder will break it. Dad doesn't come. Dad's back home as a symbol that this, my property, is poured out. It's wasted. The father remains at home. He's not even going to attend this. For all intents and purposes, he's symbolizing that my son who has wasted things that God has blessed is now to me To my family and to the village, as good as dead. 
I want nothing to do with him. Kazaza, he's cut off. He's dead. Now I want you to notice, as we look in this passage of Scripture, an outrageous expiation, verses 17, 18, and 19. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men, servants, have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's got this rehearsed repentance, but it's in his heart that I'm going to go back. I want to tell my father, after he had come to his senses, make me as one of your hired men. Let me work it back. Let me do something to pay you back and restore the money that I've wasted. He came to his senses. And so he rises to go back home. And I'd like to develop those verses. Time won't let us. But in his repentance and what scripture teaches on that. I want you to see verses 20 through 24. Not uh, we've been dealing with outrageous, outrageous expiation we just looked at. Let's look at an outrageous exoneration. Verses 20 through 24. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh my goodness. If you're a Jewish hearer and you hear Jesus telling this parable, we went from outrageous to beyond belief. This boy is walking down the road. The Kazaza ceremony, when he gets back toward the village, the villagers would run out, meet him, mock him, deride him. He would not get to come into the village or into his father's estate at all. He would have to sit there. He would be rebuked by the village elders. He would be rebuked, nearly spat upon by the villagers. If a father would ever forgive him, he would have to be banished to another village where he would then earn money to pay back. But he couldn't come in. The Kazaza. Doesn't happen in this account. Account by all stretch to Jesus here is weird. Here's the dad. He's not shut the door. He's actually been watching his son. Verse 20 as you read this, but while he was still a long way off, and let me tell you, whether your son's overseas, coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, or studying in Europe, or he's been in Washington State or New York, and he comes back after the semester, and you look, other than when they freshmen, when they put on the freshman 15, but in the upper classes, they come back, and they look at him, and you go, you meet him coming off the airport, and you're looking at him going, man, he looks different. That's my boy. He's lost 30, 40 pounds, but I recognize him. Dad sees him coming down the road in that silhouette. He goes, that's my son. I'd recognize that gate, that walk anywhere. And as you read in this passage of Scripture, a long way off, his father saw him. That meant he's been looking for him and felt compassion for him and ran. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. I must now read something from Kenneth Bailey. He says it much better than I could. In his commentary on this passage on page 66, he says this. Please, if you've not listened to anything up to this point, do not miss this. Remember, Jesus is telling a story 
as they've been picking on him for eating with people like you and me. As the prodigal returned to the village, he expected his father to remain aloof in his house while he made his way through the village. As soon as they discovered that the money had been lost among the Gentiles, the kazaza ceremony would have been enacted, would have taken place. The son would then be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see his father. Finally, he would be summoned. With the boy already rejected by the village, the father would be angry and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he pleaded for job training in the next village. But this is not what happens in Jesus' story. The father reacts in a very countercultural, outrageous manner. He breaks all the rules of oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile his son to himself. The word run in Greek, draimon, is the technical term used for the foot races in the stadium where men would run and compete with each other to be the first Thus we can translate the phrase, his father saw him, had compassion, and raced. Folks, who's he racing against? He's racing against the village people. It's not just a slow shuffle or a fast walk. Listen now. He races. Catch this. In the middle, up to this point, everything else has been outrageous. Why shouldn't what Jesus say next be outrageous? In the Middle East, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. It is safe to assume that this man has not run anywhere for any purpose for over 40 years. No respectful villager ever over the age of 25 ever runs. But now the father races down the road. And what Bailey says next is really picturesque. To do so, he must take the front edge of his robes in his hand. Let me show you. In order to run with the robes he is wearing, he will reach down and he has to grab the robe, tunic as such, and pull it up. If you read the Talmud, it will tell you that if the high priest is offering a sacrifice, even the high priest, and as he offers the sacrifice of animals, and they slay thousands of animals, and his party may have slayed dozens himself, that the blood where they slayed the animals would fill in the drains. And if his priestly robe, folks, those robes are expensive. And if those robes touched the blood, he had to let it in the blood. And if the blood ran deep, he could do nothing. At no time could he ever pull his robe up to get it out of the blood. He could never tuck it up like a cuff. He could never roll it up. You cannot expose your leg. It would be considered outrageous. This father just grabs that robe, this village elder, and just pulls it up. Listen to what Bailey then writes. The father races down the road to do so. He must take the front edge of his robes in his hand like a teenager. And when he does this, his legs show in what was considered a humiliating posture. All of this is painfully shameful for him. The loiterers in the street 
will be distracted from tormenting the prodigal and now instead will turn their attention after the father and attack him. Amazed at seeing this respected village elder shaming himself publicly. It is his compassion that leads the father to race out to his son. He knows what his son will face in the village. And yet he takes upon himself the shame and the humiliation due the prodigal. And he races out of heaven to you and to me. And he takes my shame. Amen. You're eating with publicans and sinners. And I love them, he says. And the older son, as the passage goes on, is out in the field. He is the foreman of all the hired help. And he comes home and he finds that something has happened. I want to go back to verse 21. This son has come back. When he came back, his dad, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to finish. But his father says to the slaves, the sheer fact that he started repenting, you know, I don't even remember what I all prayed when I got saved. But I know in that metanoia, that act of turning from this in repentance back to God, that turning act, God took all that. Most of us in this room have prayed something to the effect, Jesus saved me as a sinner. We don't even remember what it was, but he saw the change of our heart from that to that. Didn't even let us finish all of our prayers. And he's saying, shh, quickly, bring out the best robe. Not a robe, my robe. Let him be robed in my righteousness and put a ring on his finger, the stamp of authority, and as many as receive him, to them God gave the authority, the power, the exousia to become sons of God. And then let's kill the fatted calf and let us eat and rejoice. The older brother walks in from the field and hears this banquet going on. He says to one of the servants that works under him, what's going on? Didn't you hear? Your brother came home. Outrageous. I would have heard the Kazaza ceremony going on out in the street. <laughs> now your dad went to bring him in, dressed him, and they're having a banquet. They, we killed the calf that we've been fattening up for months. The oldest son is supposed to go into the banquet. And the custom is he is to serve as the maitre d'. As a maitre d', it is his responsibility as the father sits at the head of the table, never to get up from the table. The father would sit in a banquet ceremony. The oldest son works the room by going around to all the dignitaries and all the guests and saying, how's the meal? Can we get you anything more? How is everything? Is there anything you need? That's how you honor the family. But the oldest son, representing the Pharisees and the scribes, sits outside, bringing shame and dishonor to the family. Your brother came home. Bubba came back. What did he look like? He was a mess, man. And dad threw a banquet. I'm not going in. The father, one more time, No respect or honor, 
gets up and walks out to the older son, leaving the guests all sit there. And he'll come to that older son and say the same thing in as many words as he did to the younger one. Son, I love you. I love you. And the story stops. It's Father's Day. Most of us would never think, and we will not, take our dads for granted. Over the years when dad wanted new clubs, new rifle, new Harley, he didn't do it, didn't buy it. Not a car, didn't buy it. Because you needed braces. Those glasses, (laughs) you've been wearing them way too long. And so you need to call him and say, Dad, I love you. I appreciate you. And you will. But folks, he left heaven completely humiliated. Took upon himself the form of a servant. He loves us. He earns the right to be called Dad. Our I love you, Lord. Amen? Father, thank you for the time and the word on this Father's Day. Help us, God, as we honor you. Abba, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.